our immune system does not have a brain. It does not have consciousness. It does not have logic or intelligence, right? It's basically uh, uh, trillions of immune cells and they're listening for chemical signals. Those are the, that's the only language that they understand is chemicals. If they see, if they sense certain chemicals, then they understand that our body's healthy and they don't need to go and chew everything up inside the body. But if they get chemical signals that says, whoa, there's a pathogen here, then they're going to get activated. And that's what we call inflammation or activation of the immune system. Collective Insights is a voyage through topics and technologies revolutionizing human well-being. We explore the fields of neuroscience, integrative medicine, anthropology, optimal psychology, systems thinking, and existential risk. Groundbreaking approaches for a better world and a better life await you. Welcome to Collective Insights. All right, Dr. Momo Vucic, uh, it's a pleasure to have you here. First of all, um, why don't you give us a little bit of your background on what have you done and uh, just so that audience have a little bit of context to your uh, tremendous background that you have. Yeah, I'll be brief about my background. I was, uh, I was a scientist, biochemist, immunologist, microbiologist, all kinds of things. Uh, but really, um, I, I, I became very driven by the fact that we are in the dark ages when it comes to chronic diseases and cancers. So literally in the 13th century, when the plague hit, we didn't know what caused it. And so it we were completely blinded and we had no way to treat it. We didn't know what it, what it was. And today, Seven centuries later, when it comes to chronic diseases and cancers, we're in the same situation. We have no idea what causes them. A neighbor or a family member or a friend is diagnosed with cancer and whoops, it's bad luck. Well, it's not bad luck. There's some underlying chemistry there that caused that disease. We just don't measure it and we don't understand it. So that's really what, what, what one of the driving forces behind my, my uh, early development of the technology. And then the second driving force was a personal story in that I was diagnosed with idiopathic rheumatoid arthritis, and idiopathic sounds like a medical term, but it means we have no idea what causes it. So uh, we're going to hit your immune system with um, you know, immuno, immune suppressants, and we're going to slow it down, but we have no idea what caused it, and we can't cure it, and so you're just stuck with it, and bad luck, whoops. Uh, well, as a scientist, I didn't take that uh, as, a, as a final answer. So I searched for the, for the truth and what caused my disease. And I was able to cure myself completely with the diet change. And so it was this sort of series of events that led me to completely shift my scientific career in 2010 and to understand what is it that we need to do in order to solve all these problems. And so the first, the first uh, solution that we needed was a technological solution that can digitize the human body like it has never been done before. And so how can we collect multiple samples from every person over time and, and create massive amounts of data, digitize all the physiological processes, both on the microbiome side and the human side, and understand what makes our body tick, what makes our body healthy and what makes it sick. And then we'll figure out how to reverse and prevent those events, molecular events that lead to illness. How does so that for an intro? That's very good. Uh, so, Dr. Busic, I mean, you mentioned uh, a little bit about uh, these microorganisms. What are these microorganisms and what are they doing inside our body? Yeah. So, if you look at eukaryotic organisms, so we are eukaryotes, so all these higher organisms, we are all symbiotic 
organisms. We are an ecosystem that live in, in symbiosis with microorganisms. And there's a huge evolutionary advantage to living with microorganisms in that we, those microorganisms protect us from pathogens, they help us digest food, and they provide chemical signals and nourishment for our health. And so we've basically co-evolved, like all other animals have, we have co-evolved to depend on these microorganisms. And they provide us actually with many benefits. They, they help us develop our immune system and they, they help nourish us and so on. So we have just as many microbial cells inside and our, on, on the surface of our body as we have our own cells. Wow, that's amazing. And how about uh, in terms of the number of genes? Uh, you know, I heard that they are more like uh, human genes that we get from our mom and dad are 1% and rest are all microbial. Is that true? Yeah, that is, that is very true. So, so we inherit about 20,000 genes from our, from our, own gene, from our parents. So our, our genome codes are 20,000 genes. And these 20,000 genes encode functions that enable us to perform things like, hey, kidneys use a certain subset of those genes to cleanse your body of byproducts and toxins. Your liver is using a subset of those genes to perform its functions. Your brain cells are using a different subset of those genes to perform its functions. So these 20,000 genes allow all of our organs to perform the, the majority of their functions. And there are 20,000 of them. A typical gut microbiome of a typical human will encode 4 million genes, an average one. So wow. 4 million genes versus 20,000 genes, a huge difference. Now, majority of those microbial genes are, in fact, focused on microbial functions. And, and, and so the microbes are there because they're benefiting from it. But what they don't know, and obviously microbes don't know anything, they don't have brains and consciousness, but what they don't realize is that we have actually evolved and adopted many of the byproducts that microbi microbes perf perform functions for and we've actually been, we actually benefit from them. And so I'll give you one particular example where, since we are trying to focus here on the immune system, right? Our immune system does not have a brain. It does not have consciousness. It does not have logic or intelligence, right? It's basically uh, uh, trillions of immune cells and they're listening for chemical signals. Those are the, that's the only language that they understand is chemicals. If they see, if they sense certain chemicals, then they understand that our body is healthy and they don't need to go and chew everything up inside the body. But if they get chemical signals that says, whoa, there's a pathogen here, then they're going to get activated. And that's what we call inflammation or activation of the immune system. And so now the immune system is going to say, well, there, there must be a pathogen here somewhere. I'm going to start destroying everything in, 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 in my, you know, around. And this is where these inflammatory and autoimmune diseases kick in where the immune system is hyperactive all the time, when it, where in fact the immune system should receive a signal from a pathogen, it should become active, it should clear out that pathogen, and then it should shut down. That's the normal sequence. It should be very inactive, very rapid activation, clearance of the pathogen, very rapid inactivation, and it goes back to the normal state. Now, the, the challenge today, and one of the biggest problems, is that the signals from the microbiome that normally regulate this, that this immune system activity, 70% of the immune system is in the intestines, listening for the chemical signals coming from our food and our gut microbiome. So that's the majority of the, of the, system, of the immune system, of course. So our microbes actually control the activity of the immune system. And so when our microbes 
are either of wrong composition or more commonly when they're fed the wrong diet, they actually send the wrong chemical signals to our immune system and our immune system becomes chronically inflamed. And that leads to obesity and diabetes and autoimmune diseases and all of these degenerative diseases like rheumatoid arthritis and ankylosing spondylitis. Most of these diseases are are actually related to inflammation. Even Alzheimer's disease is related to inflammation and so on. And so we really have to focus on the communication between the gut microbiome and our immune system. And that the, the microbiome, again, doesn't have a language, doesn't have a brain, doesn't have intelligence. Its chemical signals are produced in response to what foods we feed it. And so the most simplified example I can give you is you put yeast together with some barley, and what's the yeast going to do? The yeast is not going to make gold. It's not going to make some other exotic compound or chemical. It's going to simply eat or consume that barley, and the byproduct of that is ethanol, and that's how we make beer, right? So beer is made by employing one microorganism and giving it one ingredient, which is the polysaccharides in barley. Well, in our gut microbiome, we have a thousand different microorganisms, and we're providing them with something on the order of 20,000 ingredients in our foods that we consume. And so these 20,000 ingredients flood the intestine, 4 million genes that the microbes code for process these into byproducts. And these byproducts can either feed ourselves like butyrate, or it can signal to our immune system, wait a minute, something's wrong here, get activated. It can, they control basically almost every part of our physiology. Wow. <clears throat> so uh, is it true then? Are you saying that these microbes are really the master and we are simply the puppets here that, and they actually train us somehow that if you feed them wrong thing, they're going to give us bad, they're going to do a bad thing for us. And if you feed them the good thing, so they're more or less training us as human hosts, what they want. Well, that's one way to look at it. I would look at it as it's a true symbiosis. <clears throat> we benefit from them. They benefit from us. You know, one, one, for example, fascinating uh, example for me is serotonin, right? So people know that serotonin is one of the major neurotransmitters, but it turns out that majority of the serotonin is in the body is produced in the intestine by the intestinal cells. And in fact, if you, if you have an animal that does not have the gut microbiome, uh, these are called germ-free mice, their intestinal cells do not produce serotonin. So they're no, they have evolved to not produce serotonin on their own. However, so what stimulates serotonin production in the gut? It's the microbiome. Now, why would the microbiome you know, um, produce, stimulate production of serotonin, a very important neurotransmitter in humans? Well, it turns out that many of the microbial members, many of the bacteria that live in our intestines, they can also live in soil. And so they have a certain number of genes that enable them to live in soil and the intestines. And they have to turn on certain genes in soil in order to survive there. And they have to turn on certain totally different genes in the intestines in order to survive there. So because they don't have eyes, they don't have ears, they don't know, they can't see where they are, they again have to use this chemical communication. So these bacteria will produce small molecules that basically are released in their environment. And those small molecules stimulate serotonin production in humans. When serotonin is produced by the human, it's also released inside the gut. And now the bacterium senses that serotonin and says, aha, I must be in the intestine because nothing in the soil can produce serotonin. 
So the bacteria is using our serotonin production pathway as sort of a pinging system, like an echolocator that says, whenever I produce this small molecule, if the return signal is serotonin, I know I'm in the gut and therefore I'm going to be producing these genes and that's how I'm going to survive. If I don't get serotonin back, that means I'm in soil and I'm going to live in soil. How cool is that? Well, that's very cool. That's like a GPS locator. So they are actually are using the human body as trying to figure out this from the satellite where they are, right? Exactly. So human body is exactly. their satellite, right? Exactly. Uh, let's step back for a second here because I think uh, this topic is very fascinating. Would you say that even the aging is a chronic disease and we don't really have to age because we both know people when they are even 60 or 70, they still perform as if they are still in their 30s or 40s, right? So yeah. how is it that happens to be uh, yeah. that happens? Right? I know. I mean, look at you. You're in your 60s chronologically, but you're like a 25-year-old mentally and, and physically amazing. Um, so yes, so um, we definitely, as, as a byproduct of what we do, aging is definitely like a disease, meaning there are physiological changes that human body undergoes. And these physiological changes actually reduce our cognitive abilities, reduce our physical fitness, re re reduce our mental fitness, and that's what we call aging. But also, aging is actually the number one risk factor for chronic diseases and cancers. Also, aging turns out to be the number one risk factor for infectious diseases, such as COVID, such as flu, right? So the number one risk factor for COVID deaths is the age. Uh, but you would argue that even death I mean, dying, in fact, aging is a very good predictor of death either. Also, right? <laughs> yes, it is. And so, but, but, but if we consider aging to be just like any other disease, meaning there are molecular changes that human body goes through as, as time goes on, and that's what causes all these things that we observe, such as reduced fitness and, and increased disease burden, all we have to do is understand what are those changes that, that take people from their 20s to their 70s and how can we now prevent them? So again, there's nothing magical about it. It's just chemistry and mathematics. And that's what Viome is built upon. It's built upon chemistry and mathematics. We're measuring chemistry using our fancy tests. And we're overlaying on top of that mathematical equations that we obtain from data science and machine learning so that we can understand these changes. And we already have built those models. So now the next phase really is how can we use those data to, to develop interventions that slow down and reverse aging and then perform randomized controlled trials to actually test those ideas. And we're actually moving forward in all those. And we are scheduled to, to start a clinical trial for anti-aging this year. So over the last few decades, we've had nutritional sciences that, that have basically used epidemiological data where you're looking at, oh, some ingredient on average is harmful to humanity and therefore you should avoid it. And some ingredient is beneficial overall to the whole humanity, and there, therefore we should consume it. But that's really the average, but no one is average. Everyone responds to different foods differently, and that's because their microbiome is different. And so really, un unless we measure exactly what the microbiome activities are, we cannot make any personalized recommendations. And this is exactly why if you go today with some kind of a you know, some kind of a set of symptoms, if you go to three different nutritionists and present to them exactly the same story, you're going to get three different recommendations. And that's because nutritional sciences actually don't do any measurements. And if they do, they're limited to deficiency in certain nutrients, right? They, they take your blood and they measure, oh, you have low vitamin D, let's supplement vitamin D. But really, uh, nutrition is so much more complex because like I said, 
we're, we're providing about 20,000 different ingredients in our diet to a, a gut microbiome that has 4 million genes. And they're processing these 20,000 ingredients into a flood of chemicals. And these chemicals can be harmful or beneficial to us. And the combination of foods and microbiome in each person will determine that. And so the only way you can actually make these recommendations is measuring. So um, one of the things, interestingly, you know, you keep mentioning gene and, you know, this diet. There are lots of companies who claim that DNA diet that, you know, or genoplay based on your genes or DNA, we can tell you what foods are good for you or not. And it has always uh, puzzled me. And I wanted to get your thoughts on it because I have always thought that, you know, uh, if you do my DNA today and, you know, a year later, I gained 200 pounds, my DNA hasn't changed, right? And if I get heart disease, my diabetes, my depression, my anxiety, or I even die, even after I die, my DNA hasn't changed. So DNA can't even differentiate between you are dead or alive, let alone you're healthy or sick. So when someone tells you based on your genes, they can give you a diet. Is the diet going to be the same when I actually have 500, I've gained 500 pounds and I'm diabetic and heart disease because my DNA hasn't changed. So how is it all these companies making this claim of personalized diet based on your DNA? What am I missing here? Let's talk about DNA versus RNA and why is it that we only hmm? look at RNA at this point in time? So yes. you gave some good examples. I want to give some more. So hmm. I would like everyone to understand that every cell in the human body has the same 20,000 genes. And so if you sequence your liver cells and your kidney cells and your brain cells, the DNA is going to be the same. But look at the differences between a kidney and a brain and a liver. I mean, they are completely different. They look different and they perform completely different functions. That's because only a subset of those genes is activated in each one of those organs. And that's what makes those organs what they are. It's not the DNA, it's the RNA. So when a gene gets activated, it makes copies into RNA. And that RNA gets, that's, gets converted into proteins that actually perform the functions. So RNA is really the, the executive version of the genes. And if there is no RNA, then the fact that the gene is there doesn't make any difference. Let's now go to the next example, which is even more powerful. Someone today has a perfectly functioning kidney, but three years later, they now develop some kind of a chronic kidney disease, right? If you look at their DNA of that kidney when they were health, when it was healthy versus when it's sick, it's the same thing. If you look at the intestine of a human who has IBD, when they're in remission and that intestine looks perfectly healthy and when they're in, and their and their life is good, and you the same person undergo goes through a flare now and they're sick, they're in pain every day, they're in pain every minute of every day, they can't function, and their gut, their intestine is completely inflamed. If you sequence the DNA of those cells, it's identical because it's their same DNA a month apart, right? What's very, very different, black and white different, is the RNA. So the genes that are activated during health enable that intestine to be healthy and function and absorb nutrients and not provide you with pain. Whereas when you go into a flare, that IBD person is now going to express totally different genes. And this is all caused by the microbiome and food. And now the human genes are differently expressed. And now the person is sick. And so the difference between health and disease has nothing to do with DNA. It has only to do with RNA in which genes are actually active. And now let's shift to the microbial world and give yep. one more example. So people have heard of E. coli. People have heard of Clostridium difficile, for example. And what I want everyone to understand is that these microorganisms are sometimes portrayed or most of the time are portrayed as evil and bad. But in fact, they can be very, very important friends. So Clostridia 
are microorganisms that produce butyrate in very large amounts. And that's one of the most important beneficial metabolite or, or chemical produced in the gut. And so you can have 40% of IOM customers have Clostridium difficile in their gut microbiome. And that's natural. That's not a problem. It's a very beneficial bacterium. But when a person consumes lots of, lots of antibiotics and they probably have some other kind of a dysbiosis, this Clostridium difficile can take over the community, become pathogenic, and actually can kill the person. It's the same bacterium. So if you sequence its DNA when it's beneficial versus when it's killing a person, it's the same DNA. The DNA cannot distinguish. That same DNA has the potential to be beneficial and has the potential to be harmful. But if you sequence RNA like we do, then the difference between the same organism that's being friendly versus foe is very, very different. So that's why we focus on RNA. It's the behavior, it's the actions of a microorganism or a gene, not the potential. I'm going to switch a little bit here. So let's focus on inflammation and a chronic inflammation. Uh, there are a lot of, I mean, I think there's a reasonably good understanding where I think most scientists now believe that chronic inflammation is a root cause of chronic diseases, including cancer and aging. Now, if the chronic, what causes the chronic inflammation? And uh, when there is a chronic inflammation, what can one do about it? Yeah. And how does it relate to cancer, aging, and other things? Yeah. And also how microbes relate to uh, immune system and, and also cancer. Yeah. So immune system, obviously, the primary function of the immune system is to keep microbes outside of our body, right? That is, that is it. And so it has to distinguish what is something that's going to harm us and kill us versus everything else. And everything else includes our own protein. So it has to recognize self. And so when someone develops an autoimmune disease, that means that their immune system has now shifted from attacking the pathogens to attacking self. Um, let's talk about inflammation. So inflammation is very, very important because inflammation in the gums and in the gut can, leak to, can lead to leaky gums and leaky gut, which now enables the microbiome from oral cavity and from in the intestines to leak inside the blood. And then the inflammation of the blood-brain barrier can now allow microorganisms to actually go into the central nervous system. And then inflammation, systemically speaking, for example, CRP is a, is a great marker of systemic inflammation, leads to basically destruction of all organ systems. So for example, when we talk about cardiovascular disease, we're talking about the inflammation at the artery walls, right? Um, when we talk about IBD, we're talking about inflammation at the intestinal walls and so on. When we talk about rheumatoid arthritis, so any kind of a joint problem, that's inflammation in the joints. And that's either autoimmune or it's actually due to some other activities. And so, for example, my rheumatoid arthritis and ankylosing spondylitis came from um, immune system reacting to food ingredients. Many other people develop these reactive uh, inflammatory diseases due to molecular mimicry. And a molecular mimicry is where a microorganism that's present inside of them provides some kind of a protein, expresses a protein or activates a gene that's very similar to our own gene. And now the immune system gets confused. And then most importantly, the microbiome can activate inflammation simply by producing lipopolysaccharide. So lipopolysaccharides are molecules that are produced by certain members of the gut microbiome in response to feeding them certain foods that activate the immune system and cause this chronic inflammation. And so what we have figured out at Biome is how do we actually prevent that LPS production and how do we actually lower inflammation? So that's extremely important, but there's actually an important component there because LPS, lipopolysaccharide, is not all pro-inflammatory, meaning it's a variety of molecules. It's, it's hundreds of different kinds of 
types of lipopolysaccharide, and majority of them, in fact, activate the immune system and cause unnecessary inflammation. But there are some of them that deactivate our immune system, meaning they slow it down. And so by measuring which exactly types of lipopolysaccharides are produced in each person's body, and how do we control the, the, the production of those lipopolysaccharides by feeding certain people foods, we can actually modulate the, the functions of the microbiome and modulate the inflammation in the human body, which is really phenomenal. Why don't you spend the last couple of minutes here on aging and cancer? So if you look at aging, uh, at least uh, from all the things we have seen, uh, analyzing over 300,000 people, that as people are aging, they always seem to be that inflammatory markers are the cytokines that are pro-inflammatory cytokines are going up. And is that what causes aging? Well, there are many things that cause aging. So inflammation is certainly a huge contributor. Um, also, reduction in T cells is, is a huge contributor. Um, and that, that makes it- But what causes, what causes the reduction in T cells? Is it inflammation or something else? Uh, it's, it's something else. It's basically the, 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 the reduction in the size of thymus and the, 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 the gene expression pathways in the thymus. So thymus is an organ where special antigen-presenting cells are activating T cells and they're teaching the T cells what is self and what is not self. And so it, it is inflammation that's destroying the thymus. And so we have to reduce that, but there are other regulators of, of aging via T cell activation that we can also modulate via the microbiome and nutrition. So we'll ad address that. Inflammation, like you said, and then there's a process called senescence. So senescence is a process where due to inflammation, due to a reactive oxygen species due to random mutations that are not repaired, um, basically a flood of harmful chemicals coming from the environment and coming from the gut microbiome is causing errors in our physiology. And these errors cause an increasing number of cells to stop functioning. So we all assume that when we have a kidney, that 100% of the cells inside of, of a kidney are performing the function of filtering out the bad chemicals from blood. But as we age, the, num the percentage of kidney cells that are senescent or they stop functioning increases, and eventually the kidney fails and the person dies, right? That's one of the reasons that a person can die. So when, when we talk about the immune system issues, such as reduction in T cells and, and inflammation, we're talking about the senescence of the immune system. So as we age, there are more and more errors introduced in the immune system. And so um, one of our big efforts at Biome is to actually, because we're doing the blood test, we're understanding how the senescence of the immune system affects aging and how it affects all other organ systems. And therefore, our first efforts will be at reducing the senescence of, of the, the senescence of the immune system to slow down and prevent aging. What is the microbiome's role in cancer? Wow. Uh, that's a huge topic, but let me summarize it. So what we've realized now in the last few years is that the microbiome readily crosses into the bloodstream and then gains access to all the organs via leaky gut and leaky gums. What we have also now realized is that the microbiome is actually an integral part of every solid tumor in the body. So every time a solid tumor is biopsied, there's microbial components in there. And someone would ask, well, why? Why is that? Well, micro, my, the micro, microbes, right, bacteria, fungi, and so on, they want to survive. So if they find a way into a tissue, the immune system will come chase after them and try to kill them. So it is in microbiome's interest to find a place, a safe place, which happens to be inside 
certain stem cells or certain cancer cells that are starting to form cancer that normally the immune system recognizes and cleans them out. So there's something called immune surveillance where billions of our cells are turned into cancer every day, but the immune system comes and kills them. But if the microbe, if a microbe comes inside of a cancer cell and says, hey, I want to survive here, they can express certain signals on the surface of those cells that say to the immune system, hey, there's nothing here, don't worry about it. And so now they can actually create an immunoprotective area where the immune surveillance no longer works. And that's what stimulates the onset of cancer and later progression of cancer and spread of cancer to other uh, sites. And so the microbiome can actually actively promote carcinogenesis and can actively protect cancer from the immune system and also immunotherapy. And so the microbiome plays now a critical role in the onset of cancer, progression of cancer, and spread of cancer. But not only that, the microbiome, remember the gut microbiome, even without actually entering the human body, because it regulates our immune system, it can, it can weaken our immune system and not really enable it to do immunosurveillance and kill cancers, or it can actually stimulate our immune system to be very healthy and very strong and to perform immune surveillance and kill all the cancers. And so now we have two reports where people who are undergoing immunotherapy for melanoma, if they do not respond to, can to immunotherapy, but another, part of, another person from that clinical trial responds, all the people, all the doctors did is they swapped poop from the responders into non-responders, and now they turned non-responders to immunotherapy into responders. So they're the same person. They're eating the same food. They're displaying, they're doing the same thing. All they did is they received poop from a person who responded, and now they become responders. That's unbelievable, basically, that the immune, that the entire function of the immune system is so regulated by just the gut microbiome that's found in the intestines. Wow, wow, unbelievable. Now, um, in the last two minutes here, uh, Dr. Vucic, uh, what will be your prediction uh, for the next decade or so? If you were to look uh, in 10 years from now, uh, where do you see uh, what, I mean, as, as a big picture from the humanity perspective and for why on board? Yeah, so, if, so just a reminder that our mission is to eradicate all chronic diseases and cancers, and that will happen over a period of a few decades. So we are attacking now what we call the low-hanging fruit. And so within the next decade, we, have, we are going to focus heavily on gastrointestinal diseases. So we're talking about IBS, IBD, SIBO, uh, gastrointestinal cancers, GERD, and so on. Um, and we're going to focus on metabolic diseases. So this is obesity, uh, type 2 diabetes, uh, uh, fatty liver disease, and so on. And then we're going to focus on cognitive diseases, specifically on Alzheimer's and mild cognitive impairment. And so those, those, group, those three big groups of diseases, I think that in 10 years, for the most part, we will understand exactly what causes them, and we will be able to prevent those events from taking place, which means that we will have very, very good preventative strategies for that whole spectrum of diseases. And we will already start working on the others. It's not like we're going to ignore the others. We're working on all of them. But after that, the, the rest of the dominoes will start falling. Well, here's my prediction, Dr. Vesich, that I think within a decade, uh, we as humanity would get rid of uh, cancer. That means we'll be able to prevent the cancer from happening or early diagnose them while they're still curable. And to me, that will be a great day for humanity. And uh, let that be the last word here uh, so that one day we can hope that no one will ever get sick and the billions of people on planet Earth can live a disease-free life 
uh, and we can all essentially be proud of it, what we have done at Wyoming and what we together uh, as humanity can achieve. And uh, I'm so glad that you and I are part of that mission. And uh, one day we're going to look back and say what we have created. Uh, so Dr. Bissis, thank you very much for being part of this series here and looking forward to continuing to work on that mission. Thank you, Naveen. Thank you. This podcast is for informational purposes only. The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You should not use the information on the podcast for diagnosing or treating a health problem or disease, or prescribing any medication or other treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider before taking any medication or nutritional, herbal, or homeopathic supplement, and with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this or any other podcast. Reliance on the podcast is solely at your own risk. Information provided on the podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship between you and any of the health professionals affiliated with our podcast. Information and statements regarding dietary supplements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to therein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician. This podcast is owned by Neurohacker Collective.